Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. Thank you. Well, hey, good morning. Y'all can uh, go on and be seated. It is good to be back. As Rob said, uh, we were, uh, took a couple weeks at the beginning of June just to be together as a family, and, uh, and it was an amazing time. But it's great to be back. Happy Father's Day. Uh, we're glad that you chose to worship with us, all the dads that are out there. And those of you that are joining us online, I know that there are a number of people, and uh, we know all over from, uh, from Alaska to Kentucky to Mississippi that we have folks that join us from all over, and we're grateful for that as well. So even if you're not physically in the room, we love that you choose to be part of the Grace family. So we're going to do what we do at Grace. We open the Bible together, we worship together, and we see what God is speaking to us so that we can live into it the rest of the week. So you're going to want your Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2, as we continue in our study, the letters of the churches today. So thinking about Father's Day and and the significance of Father's Day, this day that we celebrate dads and the role of fathers in our lives, and recognizing the same as we say with Mother's Day, that there's lots of mothers that may or may not have actual biological children, but are investing, pouring out their lives into the next generation. And so as a church, we will say that we are passionate about raising up the next generation of spiritual mothers and fathers. And so we see that a dad's role is not just simply the dads that have their own kids, but it is men stepping into fatherhood to raise up the next generation of young men and young women. And so it's actually the father's heart that in Father's Day, in this day of celebrating what it means to be a dad, that gives healthy and good perspective of how to read these letters. I mean, these are the letters of our Heavenly Father to His people, to His church, to His sons and daughters. And just like any good dad, He calls out what is best about them. I see you. This is who you are. This is true of you. I celebrate this in you. Stay strong. Don't give up. But then also, like any good dad. He sees what can undermine their life, that can distract or or even not just debilitate, but destroy all that God has for them. So he warns them, be aware, be careful, get rid of this, be warned. And so really, it's not just, I think sometimes we get this God perspective that God is up in heaven just waiting to just smite us. You know, he's just waiting like just to, to get you know, this list of all the things we're doing wrong, all the ways we don't measure up, that even if he, if he cares enough to even pay attention to our lives, what he's going to notice first is all the things he needs to correct and to, uh, to rebuke. But that's not God's heart. Yes, there's things that he's saying, hey, you know, address this, re, like, be aware of this, but all of it is in this father's heart of wanting the best for his children. And so I'm going to start right here. We're going to be in 
the, the letter to the church in Pergamum today. And if you are just now joining us and not been a part of uh, where we've been this summer, uh, the summer, so Grace Monroe is a part of what are now 10 different Grace churches. And so as a family of churches, every summer we study through the same section of Scripture, but in a way that different pastors can go and speak into different church campuses. So each one of the, of the pastors chose a different letter to the church. So we're not necessarily going in order, and I am deeply grateful. I got to listen uh, and hear from both Dave and Cameron the last two weeks, and I love having these other voices speak into our church, and I'm deeply grateful for the things that they drew out of God's Word. But we're going to be in, uh, in the church in Pergamum today, and starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So pretty tough words for the church in Pergamum. But before we really dive into what God is, is wanting to reveal, what He is, what he is uh, concerned about for them, and what He sees in them, I think it's important that we understand the city that He's writing to. And I love this. These are very personal letters, these little postcards from heaven. These aren't just random, you know, giant theological treaties. This is a real people living in a real place at a real time. They had all kinds of struggles and fears and hopes. Hey, these are people that are raising their children. They're trying to figure out their vocation and their job. They're trying to, to, to make ends meet, that, that have hopes and dreams and, and friendships and community. I mean, real people just like us in Monroe, Georgia in 2021, these real people trying to figure out, how do we do this Jesus thing? How do we follow Jesus in our town, in our city? And there's actually a lot known about this city, Pergamum. I mean, it, right now it is, uh, it is basically just an abandoned heap of ruins in the middle of Turkey. But at the time, it was one of the premier cities of its day. It had become uh, notorious or famous because early on its king recognized the power of the Romans and submitted to Roman rule. And in doing so, it received incredible favor from the empire, and the empire started to build in Pergamum. But the interesting thing about Pergamum is the way that it was situated. It was actually built on top of this giant rise, a thousand feet high. Imagine Stone Mountain, but about 200 feet taller, rising up out of the land around it. And this beautiful Roman city built right there on top of a taller Stone Mountain. Everything around it would have looked up to Pergamum. 
as you came and crossed the horizon, you would have seen this beautiful, white, glorious, glowing city on a hill. Actually, we have a picture of that. We could pull that up. Of Pergamum as it now is, uh, is seen. And then going to the one, I can't see what you're looking at there, of the theater. So what remains is one of the largest theaters ever built in the ancient world. Massive. But that in itself was one of the least significant features of the city. It just happens to be what still remains today. Even more important in Pergamum than the theater was the library. The the library was considered the second greatest library in the ancient world, second only to the great library in Alexandria. There was more uh, books, or at the time it would have been scrolls and parchments. In fact, it's interesting, the word parchment is taken from the word for Pergamum. It was that well known for its collection of knowledge and ideas. And, but the, the library, as impressive as it was, and being the seat of learning and education, even more impressive was the temple built at the top of the rock, a temple to Zeus and to Athena. And in front of this temple was this huge altar where every day sacrifices would have been made to the gods. And so, when Jesus writes to this little church trying to figure out how do we survive in our city with all of the things surrounding us, with all of the things facing us, he says, I see you. I know where you live. You're not forgotten. I haven't abandoned you. I am not ignorant of your circumstances. I know the struggles that you have. And specifically, I know the pain that you have faced. I know that you are considered as Jesus followers outsiders. And the way that you're trying to live, it doesn't mesh with the culture that you're surrounded by. And I know that every day as you go to your farms, as you go to your jobs, you look up at the top of that hill and what seems like it has the most power, what seems like it is, is the strongest force out there, it's all of these things that are against my name. And I know that every day you're being told that if you want to be safe and secure in life, you need to bow your knee not to Jesus but to Rome. Because you see, the temple to Zeus and Athena, as big and as beautiful as it was, the sacrifices that were being offered every day to the gods there to provide for them, to protect them, to keep them from war, to keep the peace, would have actually emerged that would have been a greater threat even than the, the temple to Zeus and Athena was the, was the worship of the emperor. Because you see, if Rome had been able to get so much power, and if it was able to provide in such lavish ways, if it was so rich and beautiful, and good, and true, and all of the knowledge of the world was centered in this empire, then surely the one that embodied that empire, the emperor, couldn't be simply a man. I mean, he had to be a god. And so Caesar is Lord, became the cry and the chant of the day. Caesar is Lord. 
And so not only at the temple were sacrifices being made to the gods of the Romans and the Greeks, but every day incense was being burned to Caesar. Prayers that he would keep the peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace that was, that was ensuring the survival of the known world because Caesar was the one that had the power. And where the Christians got in trouble is that as the world around them was chanting, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, the peace of Rome, they bent their knee to a different king. Not just simply to the king of Rome, but to the one that they believed was the king of all kings. And this king didn't live in a shiny palace up on a hill, but was born in a dirty manger in a no-name town called Bethlehem. And this king didn't command troops and, and armies and go and wage war and win battles. This king was actually led to his death on a cross where he was beaten and humiliated in front of a crowd. But it was this king that they were willing to swear their lives to that three days later rose again from the dead and prove that he wasn't just simply a man, but was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And they were willing to sacrifice everything for his name. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is really Lord, it doesn't matter what all the, the books in the library say. It doesn't matter what the power of the government says. It doesn't matter what the worship of the people declares. If Jesus is Lord, he is the only one that deserves our allegiance. He is the only one that should direct our thoughts and our ways. He is the one that can truly provide what we need, that can truly protect us from what threatens us. Jesus is Lord. And yet every day they had to face the culture and not just the consequence of, of being humiliated or being shunned by their peers, but the actual physical consequence that if they didn't bend their knee, if they didn't light their incense, they could literally be hung out and killed on the edge of that city on a hill. In fact, we know that at least one of their members just as real. I, mean, I want us to get this idea that these aren't just random names, just as real. And I hesitate to even to point, so I'm going to just say Sean. As real as Sean sitting right there was a good friend of theirs that they gathered with weekly, that they ate dinner with regularly, that they hung out with and they prayed with and they cried with and they laughed with, a guy named Antipas. And Antipas refused to say Caesar is Lord because he knew Jesus is king. And it caught up to him. And we knew that, we know that Antipas was taken. And actually, outside of the Bible, there, uh, Tertullian, uh, one of the ancient church fathers and, and other historians, writes specifically about Antipas, that the way that he met his death is that they, that they took him to the edge of town and they literally cooked him in a giant copper bowl. And as he boiled to the entertainment of the crowd, the crowd chanted around him, Caesar is Lord. And so now imagine you walk back home 
Again, the city, the giant city, the giant shrines and the giant statues and the temples and, and the, the, the cry, Caesar is the Lord, and you've just watched what happens to your friend. And you now have to go back home, and now there's an empty seat at dinner. Is it worth it? Maybe you were wrong about this whole thing. And Jesus affirms, I see you. I see your heart and the way that you have held on to me and you haven't given up despite what is happening around you. This is who you are. And actually, it's interesting the way that, that uh, the Greek is written there, that you did not renounce your faith in me. Literally, the, the phrase is that you have held fast to me. It's not just simply a past tense thing that you have done, nor is it just simply something that you are currently doing. It's actually a statement of identity. This is who you are. You are the ones who are holding fast. This is the present reality of your lives. You, this is, defines you. You are the ones, church in Pergamum, you are the ones that have not given up. You're the ones that are holding fast to my name, and yet... Like a good father who sees some storm clouds on the horizon, yet I have something that concerns me. That there are some among you who are beginning, the same actual uh, verb there, you know, you're holding fast to my name. There are some among you who are beginning to hold on to the teaching of Balaam. Now, the understanding is that there wasn't actually some guy in the church or some guy in the city named Balaam, but actually that what, uh, what Jesus is pointing back to is an Old Testament story, the story of Balaam and, and, and Balak. It's actually, if you want to go back, it's in Numbers 21 through 25. And in Numbers 21, the people of God, the Israelites, were under threat by the, uh, the Moabites. And as, the, uh, and as they grew and as they, continued to, um, as they continued to advance and as they continued to, to, uh, to multiply, they became more and more of a threat to the surrounding king. Let me read this for you. Now Balak, son of Zippor, this is Numbers 22, saw all that Israel had, done, Israel had done to the Amorites, in other words, how they're advancing and how they're growing, how they're gaining power and strength. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. He sees they've got something, that they're, the God that they are following and that they are worshiping, that he is powerful. And so this king is trying to figure out, how do we protect ourselves against this new people that's shown up? So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor. And he said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and they have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. So who was Balaam? 
is actually interesting beyond just the Bible. Again, Balaam is one of the most uh, attested to historical figures out there. All kinds of cultures in that area reference this guy Balaam, that he was known as this giant spiritual figure, this guy of power and strength that the gods listened to. And so when the king of Moab recognizes that there's an enemy out there, and that enemy happens to be the people that belong to God, he's going to go to the most powerful spiritual person he can think of. So he goes to Balaam, and he says, listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pray to God against these people. Well, the problem was is that he didn't realize those people belong to God. And so Balaam goes and tries to pray a curse over the people, and God doesn't let him. Multiple times he tries to curse the people, and every time what comes out of his mouth, mouth isn't curses towards the people, but actually blessings. These are my people. They will multiply. They will be powerful. My promises are true for them. And that even when the most spiritual person in the land that didn't necessarily know God, the true God, but just was spiritual, when he tried to speak a curse, it came out as a blessing to the people. And as this story continues on in Numbers, there's this kind of uh, ironic funny interaction between the king and between Balaam, because every time that Balaam is trying to curse them, he ends up blessing them, and the king keeps getting angrier and angrier, because he can't get God to turn his back on his own people. He can't overcome them by power. He can't overcome them by force. He can't overcome them by, his, by spiritual authority. There is nothing he can do against the people of God to defeat them, except there is one thing. And so Balaam actually comes up with this plan. And he's like, listen, hey, you're not strong enough to overcome them. God is not going to turn his back on them. Here's the only thing you can do to defeat them. Get them to defeat themselves. Here's what you can do. If you can tempt them subtly, don't be obvious about this. You just got to be sneaky. If you can tempt their hearts away from God, the one that's obviously providing for them, the one that's obviously protecting them, the one that's obviously keeping them strong, if you can turn their hearts quietly, subtly away from God, and here's the best way to do it. The tale is as old as time, Beauty and the Beast. If you can get the guys to start chasing after some other girls, and they invite those girls into their tents, you know what they're going to bring into the tents with them? Their gods. And you know what those guys are going to start caring about more than their god? They're going to start caring more about their girl and their gods, and they won't even realize it, and soon enough they won't even be paying attention to their true god, they're going to be paying more attention to their girls and their gods, and then when they've walked away from their god, they don't have his power anymore, they don't have his protection anymore, they don't have his provision anymore, then all of a sudden what are they? They're just some people out there in the desert, and you can do whatever you want at that point. And so fast forward now. So this church in Pergamum, surrounded by what would be the most powerful army in the world, surrounded by all of the known knowledge of the world, by, by, by the gods of the Romans and by the ultimate god, Caesar, holding fast to Jesus is the true king. And if Jesus is the true king and we belong to him, nothing can defeat us. 
It doesn't matter how powerful the armies of the world are. It doesn't matter how enticing the, the knowledge of the world is. It doesn't matter how, how convincing the other philosophies and policies and politics of all that go on around us are. If Jesus is truly Lord, nothing can defeat us. We are unbeatable. Except, well, there is, there is one way. If the world can't defeat us, if Satan, Satan can't conquer us, if, if victory is ours, if we are undefeatable in Christ, then there's only really one thing that can defeat us, and that is our, ourselves. If we allow our hearts to begin to turn subtly, and always it's so subtle and, and slow and quiet, our hearts to begin to turn after other things. Our hearts to, to quit holding on to Jesus as the source of our protection, provision, our identity, our belonging, our security. If we allow our hearts to begin to just fade, then we don't need overcoming force to get us to give up on God. Our own hearts will betray us. And so, Jesus warns this church, I see you. I know where you live. I know what surrounds you. But there's a few of you who are beginning to allow their hearts to be turned. And there are some teachings that are creeping in that are beginning to shake, to shape and to shake your faith. Now, we don't know a lot about who the Nicolaitans are, but they end up being mentioned several times in these letters to the churches. And our best guess as to what they taught, as to what teaching was beginning to, to, to permeate this young church, was a really simple idea. In fact, it doesn't seem threatening at all. The idea was, is that my soul and my body, Cameron talked about this last week, my soul and my body are disconnected and have nothing to do with each other. So therefore, what I do with my body, with my life, has no real impact on my soul. Now why would that be a very tempting teaching in Pergamum? Because every day I face the threat that if I don't, with my body, kneel down and offer incense to the emperor, I could lose everything. So if it doesn't really matter what I do with my body, then I could actually offer, I could go into the temples and I, I could be just with, you know, everyone else and like everyone else, and, and I could offer the sacrifices and the worship, but, but that has nothing to do with my soul, it's just, it's just what I'm doing with my body. And very subtly, this teaching, which is nowhere in the Bible, the Bible over and over again affirms that we are deeply holistic, one people, soul, spirit, mind, and body. And what happens with our body and our emotions and our minds affects our souls and vice versa, and that God made us whole, complete people. And that it's actually sin that fractures and splits that, and that Jesus' heart is to move us back towards wholeness, whole emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. 
But this teaching, this subtle teaching that was so attractive and would have been so, like, so good if we, could just, if we could just do this and then we don't have to deal with all of that. Now, we don't have the teaching of the Nicolaitans anymore, but I think it is just as easy for us to be convinced that what we do with our bodies, with our lives, our Tuesday mornings and our Friday nights have, have nothing really to do with what we do with our souls that Sunday morning when we worship and we sing and pray and open the Bible. In fact, I think one of the most pervasive and dangerous lies that the church has begun to grab a hold of, and actually for several hundred years has become one of the predominant teachings of many, many churches, is that all that Jesus really cares about is for you to pray for the forgiveness of sins and then wait for heaven one day. But that's salvation. Salvation is believing something about what Jesus did on the cross, and as long as you believe a couple of things, and you can be forgiven at that point back then, then it doesn't really matter what happens between that point and eternity. I've got my plane ticket to heaven. As long as I can escape hell, heaven's in my future. Now, the issue with that is that Jesus never taught that, and it's actually not anywhere in the Bible. Yes, the forgiveness of sins is a critical foundational aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. Salvation and deliverance from this old way of life and being baptized into new life. But what Jesus was way more concerned about was that we learn to follow Him as King and Lord. And deliverance isn't a one moment in time. Deliverance is a path out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, of our hearts being shaped and transformed by our Father in Heaven. And that Tuesday morning and Friday night are just as important as Sunday at 10 a.m. But if we can start to believe that none of it really matters as long as we've got that checkbox checked, then we're taken out of the game, so to speak. I think the letter that Jesus writes to this church in Pergamum could just as easily be addressed to the church in Monroe in 2021. But remember, this is the coming from the heart of a good father. Not just simply a rebuke, a condemnation, but a hope. Change your heart. Change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. The word repent. Turn back. Cut it off. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I love that it's not I'm going to come to you and fight against you. Jesus, is, his concern is for his sons and daughters, and so he's not going to—it's not a war against them. It's a war against anything that's going to take their heart away from his. And what is going to win that? Well, ultimately, His Word is going to prevail. That sharp double-edged sword that is going to, to cut off and to remove anything that is keeping them from the heart of God. And just like all of these other letters, and I'll close with this, there's a promise. Hold on. 
I know what surrounds you. I know what faces you. I know what you see when you look at the top of that hill every day. I know the political idolatry, and I know that the, the, the cultural pressure is, is, is confronting you every day, but remember who is your king. And to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give you the sustenance that your soul needs. You may feel like, or it may seem like, or surround you may look like you need these other things to affirm or to protect or to provide. You need to to taste of these other places, that you need these things to make you complete. But if you come to me, turn your hearts back to me, I will give you what your soul needs. That manna that carried my people through the wilderness. And not just that, if you overcome, if you persevere, if you stay true, hold fast to me, I have a stone, a white stone. That actually, the, in the Roman, the, the tesseract, it was, it was a stone that was given to the victors of the Olympic Games. And that stone gave them access to the victor's banquet. And Jesus is saying, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres, that holds fast to my name, I have a victor stone for you. And that stone gives you access to a banquet that you can't even begin to imagine. I've got, I've got food for you along the way. I've got that hidden manna that will sustain you each day, what you need to make it through each day for the true hope, the true peace, the true joy, the true love, the true purpose, the true belonging that your soul craves. I've got that manna for you. But even better than that manna, I've got a banquet waiting for you, a feast that your soul longs for. And on that stone, I've carved a new name your true name, that name that I called you when I knit you together in your mother's womb. This is who you are to me, and I can reveal it to you now, but it won't ultimately get revealed to the world until you've held fast and you've endured. This actually teaching, it it hit me in a fresh way as I was preparing for this, is that I've loved, I mean, if you've been a part of Grace for any period of time, you've heard me teach on the white stone. I love this imagery of a a new name. And we talk about how we want to celebrate at Grace 10,000 restoration stories. That's our our dream for five years. And whether that's restored families or, or restored marriages or restored relationship with God through Christ. But one of those things that we see that keeps getting restored is identity. This idea that I I lived my whole life as if I was a loser or forgotten or stupid or worthless. And and then I hear from Jesus, the one who speaks to my soul the same way that he's speaking as personally and direct to this church in Pergamum. And one of the first things that Jesus reveals when he begins, when we begin to hear him and speak to him is our true identity. That name that, that is revealed only, that can only be revealed to the one who receives it. In other words, it can only be given to you by God. I can't tell you. And in fact, your spouse can't tell you, your parents can't tell you who you are to God. And we even know this. I could tell you every day, I could wake up every day and at 8 a.m. every day, call you and be like, listen, you are loved. 
You are loved. You are more than a conqueror. You are a mighty warrior. You are strong. You are, you are the beloved child of, of a good king. I, I could call you every day and tell you that. You know what you would do? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, of course, I know that. Of course I am. You know who you need to hear it from? Jesus. Because when he speaks into our soul, it is a rock that this world can't take away. And what God is saying is, I have revealed that name. And I will give you that name. I will, I, will, I will share with you that name. But if that name is going to become true, if you're going to step into that identity, if, this is, if, if the mighty warrior that I call you is going to be revealed, if the great encourager that I have named you, the lion, the princess of peace, whatever that name is that God calls you, for that to truly be revealed, for that stone to be held forth, that, that, that ticket to the victor's banquet, you have to endure. There's some things we have to overcome. There are some temptations and pressures. There are some lies. There's some, some subtle treachery that surrounds us, these cities on a hill that seem like they're so powerful. And yes, we don't have a temple covered by serpents to the god Zeus, but there are a whole lot of people that are bowing down to some really large elephants and donkeys. And we don't have giant stadiums to Caesar. This one might hit home. But there's a whole lot of people that raise arms and sing chants to a giant bulldog. And I love Georgia football, but it's a terrible God. And maybe for a Saturday, it can make me feel like I belong and that things are going to be okay, but I don't want to build my life on it. And so, the G so Jesus, the true king, says, listen, be aware. There are some that are holding on, that are things are beginning to creep in, and they are subtle, but they are dangerous. Hold fast to my name. I'm going to ask Zach and, and, and crew to come on back, and we're going to worship, close and worship together. But I'm trying to think about this picture of holding fast. And it, it reminded me of the time, the first time I ever went rappelling. Have you ever, have you ever been rappelling? It's uh, where you choose to throw your body off a giant tower. It, it doesn't makes any, it make any sense, but... I still choose to do it. But uh, so the first time I ever went, they kind of hook you up to this harness and, and they, they secure you in and the rope is, is, is uh, around the top and you've got this uh, uh, belay, which is the person that's kind of keeping you alive. And, and, but the way the repelling works that is, that is pretty nonsensical is that you've got the harness and all of the, like, the gear that you can see locked in and, and, and it's right in front of you. And everything in you, as you begin to, to, to lower yourself, to back off of this cliff, wants to grab what's right in front of you. But if you've ever been repelling, you know what happens if you grab what's right in front of you. I mean, you can hold on for a little bit, but eventually you're going to get tired, and all of that is just going to slip right through your fingers, and you will, unfortunately, plummet to your death. It's a real dramatic way of, go have fun. What you have to do is you actually have to grab the rope behind you and let go of what's in front of you. 
You have to grab this thing that you can't see, and then throw your weight against it. And what's interesting is not actually your strength that is holding you in place, that's keeping you safe and secure. It's actually when you let go of what's in front of you and, let, and grab a hold of what you can't see and fall against it, it actually locks into you. So it's not your, your weight holding you up, it is the strength of the harness that is holding you in place, that lowers you safely to the ground. And that was the end of the thing about these people that, that are being told is like, all of this is right in front of you. It would be so easy to try to hold on to these things to, to make you feel secure and safe, and life is going to be okay. But I'm telling you, it's going to slip through your fingers, and it can't hold you. Let go. And trust the one that you can't see that will actually lock into you and can hold you in place and lower you safely to the ground. And so as we worship, I just invite you to just, again, like I said, you don't need to hear from me, you need to hear from Jesus, and just ask Him, Lord, is there any place in my heart that I've begun to just subtly turn to hold on to other things, to find security or belonging, safety, control, identity, purpose? Where are you inviting my heart to turn back to you? Lord, where do I need to receive your forgiveness and your grace? And where do I need to continue to learn how to live this thing out? This afternoon, tomorrow morning. And so let's pray, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the way that you personally spoke into that church so long ago. And I thank you for the, the witness of those that stayed true to you even when all of the culture and the world around it seemed so in your face, so powerful. I pray we could be those same kind of people, that same kind of church. And so, Lord, if there's any way that lies or deceit of the power and the, and the culture around us has, has creeped into our heart, has creeped into our community, Lord, will you reveal that? Will you give us the courage and the, to be honest with you about that? And even right now, if things are coming to mind, ways that you've, your heart has been subtly turned from God to other things, just be honest. I mean, that's the whole definition of confession, to state what is. So even right now, just Lord Jesus, I confess, I admit. I don't trust you here. I'm struggling with this. I'm believing these lies. I'm living in a way apart from you. And in that confession, Jesus says that when we confess, he is faithful and just, will forgive us, cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. just ask the Lord, God, what do you want me to receive? What are you inviting me into? Not just simply what am I turning away from, but what are you asking me to turn towards? And so Lord, we just invite you to speak into our hearts and our lives. And as we worship you, the one true King, the one true Lord, 
Will you continue to mature us, grow us, and strengthen us into a people who hold fast to your name? In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.